0: Hello, welcome to Crackle Comics Weekly, the show of all shows. This is, I believe, episode thirty-eight. My name is Vincent, and I'm joined by co-host.
1: Yeah, just just Mike this week, as Daniel is installing Wi-Fi. He's laying pipe. Oh dear God, fiber optic wires everywhere.
0: So we have a lot of uh, books to talk about this week.
1: Yes, it's yeah. He he abandoned us on another large week, which. You know, looking at it for next week, he better not miss next week because if he misses next week, then he can't talk about Iron Man. But we'll jump right into our books this week. I'll kick things off with Amazing Spider-Man number 50, which is hey, remember how we just had an issue come out last week? And then I think we have the the point issues coming out next week. So this book just is just weekly now at this point, pretty much. But Amazing Spider-Man number 50. This is Nick Spencer and Patrick Gleason. Last remains starts here as Spencer's been building up to Kindred and how he's fully unleashed. And opening pages, we see him digging up the grave of George Stacy as he's planning a party for Pete. And then a broken and beaten Spider-Man wakes up in an alley and runs to Doctor Strange for assistance as Norman pleads with Sin Eater to join him before he's ultimately shot by Sin Eater and his sins are cleansed. And this is, you know, thinking his task is complete, he can be cleansed. Sin Eater is uh, double-crossed by Kindred and says he's still guilty, and now that he's got enough energy, he can unleash an odd Pete, killing the Sin Eater and exploding the Sins, which he uses that to infect the rest of the Spider characters, as we see what happened to Spider-Man on that tram out of Norman's lair in in, uh, number 49. And we see all of them start attacking Pete, and as he wakes up, he's with Doctor Strange. Peter tells him everything, saying how he screwed up, and he almost gets slapped by Strange for telling him that he made a deal with the demon. And then Doctor Strange's actual line here is, "Whether it was to save lives or not, you still made a deal with a demonic entity." So obviously, is this a one more day? Is it like, are we fully leaning into it now? Because the the big kind of speculation throughout this whole run is, are we going to undo one more day? As you know that we've been getting little hints dropping here or there, and then we see Gwen, Anya, and Silk break into the Sanctum tanktorum and you know start attacking them. And then Kindred has Gwen and George's dead bodies displayed at this table and then our last bit back to norman he's found by dr kafka he's going to take him to jail but they can't find senator and if that's the case then well it's worse as kindred is here and why is that worse well vince it's harry osborne which is like oh it's i mean i felt like everyone had guessed it by this point so the reveal is like not as impactful as it could have been because, you know, some people thought it was going to be Gwen, some people thought it was going to be Harry, some people thought it was going to be, like, the dead kid that Spider-Man and MJ had way back at the end of the Clone Saga, but no, it's it's Harry Osborn. At least I'm taking the stance that it's Harry Osborn pre One More Day, because, you know, last saw him around, you know, when he was American Son, was that, was that uh, you know, dark, was that, during, you know, Dark Avengers, to Dark Reign?
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure if this could possibly, be you know, as I was reading through this, you know, I wasn't like fully, fully, fully like paying attention. So I was thinking, is this George Stacy, which would be another yeah, kind of
1: Because he rises out of the Stacy's grave, and I was like, oh, is it George Stacy? That'd be kind of, that'd be real crazy.
0: Yeah. So the first obvious statement is that, as Mike alluded to, Harry Osborne is currently alive and well. Spencer hasn't touched him in the run at all but he was all over slots run, he was in the finale, and he's been back since One More Day. And it's just kind of like brushed away the explanation. So you have two options here. I mean, I I guess it's kind of three options. So this could be current, alive Harry getting into this mess for some reason, you know, post One More Day Harry, or is this separate, like pre One More Day Harry, or, you know, it could be clone or whatever the hell. Um, in between, or, sep- or a third option. So the thing is, for the pre-One More Day, he died in Spectacular 200, which was the finale of the great run by J.M. DeMatteis and Sabu Shema. But as he's dying, and, you know, he died after lapsing back into the Green Goblin. Obviously, his father, by that point, was quote-unquote dead. But when he dies, he apologizes, he repents, and he made peace with Peter. I mean, he still did screwed-up stuff, so maybe he goes to hell, and maybe that, like, you know... Break, like reverses that progress that he made at his death. I don't know. Post One More Day One More Day Harry also would need kind of an explanation because I mean you could lean into the One More Day part and set up like this weird clone dynamic where it's like, why am I alive? You know, like I I died and you know had a resolution and everything like that. And then I was back. But like post one more day Harry, you know, in the American Sun arc and things like that, he had his own character dynamic Character developments and you know moved even more away from his dad and things like that. So I don't really know what the option. I don't. I don't know. I expect a, an explanation. You know, obviously, I'm sure Spencer is going to give us more details. The other thing is, okay, it's Harry Osborn, big reveal. You know, it's another Peter and Harry. You know, back and forth. You know, their friendship and relationship. So, what does Harry have to do with Spider Woman? and silk. It's like, I don't... It's just convenient, cro- you know, amp up the crossover. Like, some of the tie-ins I know are going to be related to the taken-over Spider characters. I think more enticing is the potential face turn of Norman and Osborn. Um, and there are some skeletons in the closet that Spencer could acknowledge or pull out when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's almost like I'm preempting do we have to get... Do we have to do another episode, possibly here, of Saga, the Clone Saga? If that that kid comes back, and you know with you know Norman being cleansed, and you know he he got the kid, and assume like presumably whisked it away to Europe, which is where we have established that's where Norman Osborn hides everything that he ever needs. It's often some castle in Europe somewhere. Uh, if there's like you know this kid that you know it's a little girl. and she's got red hair like okay we know what's happening here but i i don't know it's my thing with harry is you could look at it this way mate i know you know maybe the harry osborne that's been around since one more day maybe that's a clone that norman made and you know, Norman knows that his as actual son is getting turned into this crazy demon creature, and he wants to lash out at everyone for not for no one saving him. When it comes to Spider-Man villains, you know the the motivations have always been kind of convoluted, blaming Pete for things that maybe not always he's responsible for, but maybe responsible for you know small ways here and there. So there's a lot of ways we can play with this, but you know the the groundwork is here as this is part one of you know what we've been building up to for 50 issues. So we'll see how it you know it shakes out, but. I also want to say that Patrick Leeson's art here is pretty good. He reminds me with his Spider-Man expressions and the mask of kind of like a, a younger Mark Bagley from like the late '90s. So uh, just just with the eyes, I don't know what a, something about it reminds me of his uh the way he draws Spider-Man. You know, back around the Clone Saga. So it's kind of cool to see that. But i hopefully, you know, Patrick Leeson draws this entire story arc. We'll see if that you know sticks around. But you know, with the with the sad de- departure of Ryan Ottley in the last issue, but it's nice to see Patrick Gleason back, and I know that at least the covers for the next upcoming issues with Doctor Strange are looking really, really cool. But nothing else to say. We'll we'll dive into Batman. So in Batman territory, the first of two Batman books this week, and this is the final issue of this series. This is Batman, The Adventures Continue, number 14, Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, Ty Templeton Art, Monica Kubina on colors. And if I read it right, like I said before, this, I believe, is the final chapter. And this is also the final chapter of Red Sun Rising. Jason's got Bruce, Joker, and Tim all in his hideout and he's forcing Batman to kill the Joker like he did him. And obviously Bruce is going to refuse that. So Jason shoots the Joker and basically he's like, "Hey, if you don't kill him, I will." And this prompts Joker to stall and he's, you know, basically telling jokes and playing the two against each other is Bruce is kind of giving like mental cues to Tim on how to free himself from this water tank he's been strapped into as it's filling up and he's going to drown eventually. Joker pulls the fast one here as he calls in straight man to attack and uh, basically opens up the place to get, you know, explodes and collapses as Batman and Robin, then, you know, having freed himself, take both of the villains down. And this is the part where the exploding, oh no, everything's exploding. Bruce saves Jason, but he says, he's like, hey, thanks for not giving up on me, but my time's over. Go save the Robin that you still have. And, you know, he's you know grabbing the bat line and he jumps off and falls presumably to his death. Batgirl rescues Bruce and Tim as Bruce reflects on the choices he's made. And then we see Jason getting saved by Deathstroke, and now he's a part of their family. Eh, this was better than the way I thought they were going to take this. At least it's not a complete copy of, of The Red Hood. It, it still kind of is, but I, I thought this was pretty weak, and each chapter got weaker and weaker. Um, and, you know, it's a sad thing to see to the normal you know, high caliber that we're accustomed to seeing by the, the storied creators of this DC animated universe. Fun. You know, overall I'd say it was a fun ride to see Ty Templeton back. It was fun to see Paul Dooney and Albert at work collaborating again on Batman. Obviously it's left open for a sequel as I know they got like vampire Batman and the toys here. And, you know, we got to see a bunch of them, but it, and I know Batman who laughs uh, got an animated toy. So maybe they work him in there again later, but, Overall, uh, it was fun to see the ride, but I'm not really excited for any more anytime soon in the animated universe. If that's the way it shakes out, that's the way it shakes out. And, you know, it was fun while it lasted, but I think it's kind of ran its course, and maybe we don't need to keep diving back into the animated universe. Or if we do, maybe we don't need to do Batman. Let's do more Superman. Let's do some more Justice League. I don't know. I don't make the decisions, but it seems that when it comes to Batman, shoehorning these characters that would never appeared in was a grand experiment that didn't really turn out at least i think to the strengths that normally we're accustomed to seeing from that universe and also you know it's been 20 years maybe it is time to just you know lay it to rest and reflect on you know everything good that came out of it but more batman books for detective comics is vince is going to recap yes number
0: 1028 written by pete tomasi and art by nicola scott Tomasi first shouts out his old creative partner, and someone we talked about at the top of the show. There's a storage company in Gotham named after Patrick Gleason. And there's later a, a judge character with the last name Hurwitz, which theoretically could be named after Greg Hurwitz, who wrote Batman the Dark Knight for like a dozen issues in the New 52, but I doubt that. So the story here, a cop has been killed. I think it's, you know, the cop's a dirty officer. And Bruce after, uh, so he's at the funeral as Bruce and he uses some tech, some, you know, covert tech to eavesdrop on some of the people at the funeral. Then he comes back later as Batman with a device, essentially like an X-ray CAT scan kind of thing to examine the body in the ground. And he discovers, and also some, yeah, he discovers that the body is like missing its head And some other law enforcement types are also suddenly getting their heads cut off. Turns out that this character, Steve Holman, is acting as a vigilante mounted officer after his father, an officer, was forced to commit suicide and framed after he exposed the corruption scheme. And we get to see Batman riding a horse, chasing after him. They get in their little scuffle. You know, the guy loses. Batman takes him in. His father is cleared though, but he, the crazy son, is sent off to jail. And also a police officer here, Officer Nakano, who I believe is introduced maybe in in James Tynan's run, because there's some references to to Joker War. He's running for mayor on an anti-vigilante platform. So, you know, that's gonna presumably pop up more and cause some tension for Bruce. This was a one-off issue. Nicola Scott's art was fine. I don't think it was the strongest that I've seen from her. I'm not really sure what I would consider the the peak of her. Um, Like I guess I'm pretty sure she was one of the artists on the on Greg Rucka's Return to Wonder Woman. That might be her peak art. I thought this was just kind of middle of the road, to be honest, even though she's a good artist. Uh, the next issue is another one-off new villain with art by Kenneth Rockefort, who is uh, recently declared himself as comic skate. So I'm not sure how that works for DC, but this issue was all right.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the state of the Batman office is in terms of that, nor am I gonna you know, call out and want to comment on it. We might just not read the issue, but I thought this was good. Nicola Scott's art, I thought was pretty good. I liked the big splash page of Batman standing in the graveyard. And, you know, it's Detective Comics, he's doing straight up detective work in this. It seemed just, you know, like something you'd see in a Grant Bray vocal book, which is always a plus in my book. It's got that Halloween theme with kind of the headless horseman thing going on where he's got a guy chopping off people's heads. It was entertaining, pretty fun, good detective story. So, you know, no complaint from me there. I did read the end of joker war so at least you know positioning myself to know what the status quo for the world of gotham and batman is after that i'm definitely going to you know try the next issue of tynan's uh batman run and see where we go from there um but it looks like next week is a lot of like reset and status quo for going forward because i know nightwing's back in blue in the next issue of uh, nightwing and jurgens is still on that i don't know if that's jurgens final issue um, we might read that. I know Ram V is finally we're getting really to do his Catwoman run for, since uh, his first, I think, three issues were ties into Joker War. So maybe we'll check that out. So, you know, we're out of, out, out of Joker War. We might be coming back to the Bat Family books here adjacently here and there to check in and see where, you know, things are going. But overall, just, you know, sticking Detective Comics 1028, pretty good, solid issue. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, great, great thing to see for the Halloween theme. But I'll go in for Captain America here. Captain America number 24, Tanahasi Coates and Daniel Cunha on Art Now. Uh, no more Bob Q, but uh, welcome new artist change as I've seen his work on Captain America before. I think back in like the Spencer run and maybe like the end of Remender. And that was really, really good there. Sharon Carter is still the focus of this book as she's adjusting to being young again. Um, we get a cool sparring scene with her and Steve. Um, as they know, they're putting their lives back together realizing that hey since shield went down they're kind of the only game in town in terms of counterintelligence and uh, trying to save the people and then she's talking to about how she's now gotten to be on the ground the last few months and not you know up in the skies as agent 13 she got to be you know back as a field agent and directly help people again so which has kind of inspired her and in seeing how you know captain america views people and then this is juxtaposed with alexander lucan having nightmares of the Red Skull within them, and Alexa Lucan is trying to awaken that to hatch their plans. So we get some pretty cool, creepy uh, Red Skull sequences here. And then Cap and Sharon get a call from uh, Tony Ho that Misty Knight's signal has been reactivated in Madripoor and that they're needed to deploy to go rescue them. And then Tony also teases a new suit. So uh, this is fine. It's been a fine... I don't want to say boring, because like each issue is building, and I like what Coates is doing, but... I would like to see Captain America start being the focal point of the book again, where it seems like it's been Sharon's book for the last arc or so. Also, it seems that Steve's been out of costume, too, for more issues than in costume. So, you know, now, you know, because, you you know, he's just Steve for a while back in kind of like the super soldier suit. So maybe it looks like next issue with issue 25 is now maybe a return to form here with Captain America teaming up with Sharon to go to Madripoor to go rescue, you know, Misty Knight as they have Thunderbolt Ross, and they're teasing uh, the return of an old villain. I don't know if that's Red Skull or someone else, but we'll see how that shakes out. But Vince, you have an indie book in Commanders in Crisis.
0: Correct. This first issue, as the whole series, uh, written by Steve Orlando, art by David Tinto. Interestingly, very surprised to open up this book and see an introduction by Dan DiDio which covers the premise of this book and kind of hypes up Orlando. So the idea here is it's a crossover event book. You know, it it says crisis in the title. So, and and this is set to be 12 issues. So think like Christ and Infant Earths, but if that was like the also the first appearance of every single character in it, that's, that's the way they're trying to explain this book, which is kind of an interesting concept. There've been a few things slightly close to that, um, as far as, you know, starting off a shared universe, you know, introducing characters through a big, event-style story. But I was also a little surprised, pleasantly, that several chunks of this book take place in Philly. We open in Philly with some detectives seemingly investigating a corpse by way of vampire bites. And then in Washington, D.C., a congressman is setting forth the American Individuality Act to dissolve the country into 52 independent nation states. Okay, Um, and I don't think that comes up again. (laughs) Then we're introduced to Crisis Command, which is kind of like our Justice League or our multiversal team up here. And their crisis at hand, at least initially, is that beings from 77 years in the future have come back in time to steal hope from our time um, because they've run out of the hope that they feed on something in the future. I guess the focal point here here or I don't know. They all kind of get their own uh, share of the pages. But one character here is Prize Maker. He's kind of like a su- Superman, the closest thing to a Superman analog. Um, though visually, he actually looks a lot more like Hyperion. But he like saves a a, fu- a burning building and then makes out with a male fighter fighter. So you know, he happens to be gay. And it turns out the team is from all from different realities. And also, all of them in their respective realities are either current, I'm not sure that they're current presidents, but they're presidents at some point in their realities and all of historical note. So we have the first gay president in his dimension, the first woman president, the first black woman president, the first Latino president, the first Pakistani American president. I don't know, honestly, I kind of lost interest as the book went on. Half the characters have these weird like nonsense powers kind of think, think stuff like the authority and I'm not talking like Midnighter, but I'm talking, you know, like um, like Jenny Sparks uh, and and the characters like that, where it's like this person's power is they communicate and feed their energy from cities, um, you know, like that's an authority character's name I can't think of off the top of my head. And like Jenny Sparks is the spirit of the Millennium, and you know, characters like that. And all a lot of these characters have those those kinds of weird, ambiguous like nonsense speak powers, which I don't understand. Um, and I don't really have the patience to understand. I think people who do have the patience to stick with this will probably be rewarded when all 12 issues are said and done. There will probably be some interesting ideas here, but in a monthly format, in a serial format, I don't think I really have the bandwidth for this. I mean, it's kind of goes back to the premise. Like you're trying to tell this huge event story and introduce like a cast of like, 10 characters right off the bat in one issue. So it's, it's just hard to uh, really grasp. Um, but the art is solid. And I think some of the ideas are cool and it's an interesting premise. Um, honestly, I thought this was actually, I mean, obviously it has the word crisis in the title, but I misunderstood and, and was reading certain things. I thought this was another Watchmen type pastiche, um, which would have been relevant this week as well. Cause we have Watchmen related to content to talk about later, but Still cool concept, kind of a crisis prestige.
1: You uh, you mention a book that's hard to grasp, and uh, I think we're talking about another one here again in Dark Knight's Death Metal Number Four, and this is uh, Scott Snyder, Greg Bull, Jonathan Lippy on the you know, the gang hasn't changed here, but I I think it's safe to say at this point that the series has officially become too big for its own good, and I I want to also stress that I'm not entirely sure what's happening here now because I don't I there was like one other tie-in that I didn't read that came out last week. But like half of this issue is just a recap of things that happened in the other tie-ins and then when it starts again it just, you know, the other half is just hinging on Wonder Woman convincing Superboy Prime to turn and go with them to fight, you know, the Batman who tries too hard. And then she succeeds and does that and then Superboy Prime like punches the multiverse again and somehow that gets the Trinity back to go team up with the flashes who were with the Mobius chair. And then if we remember back from speed metal, we thought they already got the chair and it was all thing. And then it's like, nope, they didn't win because Batman Who Tries Too Hard was like, haha, I rerouted the chair, so when you sit in it, it gives me energy and now you're all gonna die. So find out in the next issue. It's like it's like playing tag with that kid who's just like no I got a shield. This is home base. Like this is only I think this is 12 issue or like or this might be you know Nine or 12 issues, and like this is issue four, plus, and really, you know, with like three tie ins that were like all 45 pages, too. So it's just like, can we wrap this up, please? Like, it's, I, I've had enough. I'll stick with it just to understand what this publishing line DC is going to be post death metal, but, and you know, it, this opens up the door where if we want to talk uh future state very quickly after this, but like, I don't know what's happening post this like it i'm just i'm done with it like it's just w- something that gets so bigger and then it becomes like comedy at this point where it's almost like a train wreck because you can't look away and I'm only reading it just to see how this whole thing ends out and not being a fan of the Batman who laughs and them putting him everywhere they possibly can in the span of nine months i'm kind of already sick of it like it's and it's you know I don't like saying that but You know, at least, you know, the Greg Capullo art's cool to look at, but that's pretty much all there is at this point. So, I don't know.
0: Yeah, on the other hand, less confusing, maybe, mostly because there's no, you know, there's not anything to grasp on. Here is another one of DC's quarterly plus, you know, $10 books, 80-pager, 90-pager, 100-pager. This has 10 stories this is a, I guess it's Halloween. I mean, most of the stories are kind of Halloween related. And last week we had the same thing, but 100% swamp thing. So they they snuck out two of these $10 Halloween specials here. So this one, you know, the, the name of the title, it's supposed to kind of sound, it's a play on Brave and the Bold. So these are all team ups. And I guess the Halloween aspect is mostly that in each instance, there's at least one of the characters are kind of like spooky related. So I'm just gonna comment on a few of them that stood out to me. The first one is Madame Xanadu and Man-Bat. I wrote Mike Perkins, but that who draw, that's who draws it, and he draws it pretty well. Xanadu and Man-Bat, who I guess are both coming into this from the perspective of League dark, they're investigating a sad ghost whose identity has been taken over. And at first it's like, oh, maybe it's a demon. And Man-Bat's like, why are you taking me along? Like, I know I'm like a spooky bat dude, but you know, I don't know anything about supernatural things. But it turns out that it's not like this demon thing. It's a freaking white Martian, and it footnotes back to the Grant Morrison JLA arc. So I don't know how continuity works. That's really weird. But it was, but it's a pretty good story. Um, it's a good showing for Man Bat and for all the characters involved. Then there is a Batman story, and I don't, I don't think he's teaming up. No, he's not teaming up with anyone here. So he's kind of. This might be the only story like that, um, where there's not really any team up aspect, but it, it does have a Halloween aspect in a sense. It's a story drawn by Leonardo Manco, who I'm not sure when I last saw his art, but it's really cool. It's essentially a Bloody Mary story where these kids have this rumor in their town. Like if you say this, like entities name three times in the mirror, it'll grab you and then you die 24 hours later. And Batman investigates it and figures it out. And the peak is essentially when Batman slips on. I'm going to call it a brass knuckle, even though it's not made of brass. I'm not sure how that works, you know, what you're supposed to call it. But it's a spiked nth metal knuckle, which he punches like this, like darkness energy entity with, um, which is pretty epic. Then the... We get our patented Riley Rosmo story. He has one in all these damn anthologies because I, you know, I've bemoaned before. I'm not sure if they know what to do with him otherwise. Though I believe he's getting one of these Future States books. It's a fun team up between Hal Jordan and Etrigan, and that's about it. They have Etrigan rhyming, but it's not like super, super annoying rhyme. It's it's pretty much very basic, like elementary school poetry rhyming. And Hal Jordan, kind of a hot shot. Etrigan, kind of a hot shot. At the end, you know, they have their misunderstanding. At the end, they, you know, are cool with each other. I thought it was a good story, even though the art is the star. Then there's a Superman and Swamp Thing team up. And it also starts with Clark acting as a reporter. So this was pretty cool. And the villain here ends up being Clayface. And it's kind of like some body horror type themes. And then visually, like there's a really crazy moment where Clayface, like, I guess, forms himself kind of into a shredder. And just annihilate Swamp Thing. But then, of course, Swamp Thing, like, seeds himself into Clayface and then rips out of him. Um, And, like, people have been eating, like, Clayface fruits. And so then they all turn into Clayfaces and their bodies fall apart. It's pretty cool. It'd be interesting if they set this. Like, I'm not sure what the backstory was for James Tynan's detective run and Clayface's face turn there. It'd be interesting. I'm, I'm sure there was some explanation, but if not, it would be interesting if they said, like, hey, this takes before detective number, whatever, whatever. Then there's a really weird story with Aquaman and Frankenstein, which is number one, a bizarre mix, but even weirder that Aquaman's essentially like take, taking his daughter to work. So Andy, who's still like a toddler or whatever, for most of the story is like strapped to his chest. Um, you know, in one of those like baby carriers or he's carrying her around, he has to like change her diaper at some point while they're interrogating uh, someone. It's it's pretty strange. And then probably, I don't know that it's the best story here, but the standout story, the the unique thing that you, you want to pick this up for potentially is the final story, which is Garth is kind of just trolling DC and trolling superhero universes with having, I think it's Tor from like his Hitman stuff and things like that get into a drinking contest with dark Side. And there's jokes about Darkseid getting canceled because he says you people and then he ends up getting drunk in a cab. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Obviously if you know if you're if you're a new God's Darkseid fan, you just stretch the uh, continuity like the rest of these stories. But this was fun. I mean you gotta at least half of them are hits.
1: Yeah, I mean, I liked all the ones you like. Uh, the super, the Max Fiumora art uh, with the Superman, Swamp Thing, Clayface, story was really, really good. Draws a great Superman. Uh, Swamp Thing looked great, too. So that might be my favorite of them. It's nice to see Garth Ennis do anything, so that's always a plus, as we're be- we're both pretty big Garth Ennis fans. Yeah, overall, I like this better than the Swamp Thing one last week. I think this was a little bit more out there. The Riley Rossmo art uh, on the Etchricate and Greenland story, maybe the standout of the entire issue. That was really great. So yeah, this is a pretty fun one. I even like the the Raven and One Woman story was a little bit uh, good too. I like the art there as well. So yeah, this is a pretty pretty big winner one, right, book. Right? And I guess the next one will be the holiday special. Um, and that usually is always a pretty good one, uh, at least in, you know, years past of usually got one pretty good story that goes, ah, that's pretty great. So yeah, another solid of these, you know, quarterly plus specials.
0: Yep. The next book is Grendel, Kentucky number two written by Jeff McComsey, art by Tommy Lee Edwards. So these sibling characters, uh, they were trying to figure out more about what happened to their father figure. And they meet up with the sheriff and he's like, yeah, I found his torso here. His head was over that way and I could never find his arm. And there wasn't that much blood because clearly he wasn't killed here. His body parts ended up here. So the brother and the sheriff enter the mine or the mysterious mine but the woman doesn't go in. She has some childhood memory attached to the, to the cave, to the mine that keeps her from going in. While back at the fort, someone is keeping watch and they go over to check on someone who seems that maybe they fell asleep and their head falls off. So then the, uh, our main characters see a fire in the distance. They rush back to the fort and we just straight up see a monster. And it turns out that the woman met that monster as a kid wandering into the cave thinking that her dad was there. And the elders in the community know about it. Isn't a huge reveal because it's kind of how the premise was explained. But the monster is pretty weird and cool looking. Kind of reminds me of, uh, I forget what they're called, but there's like these enemies in Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess where it's like all black and like there's kind of like a technological or like tubing kind of appearance. Like almost also think of like aliens, xenomorphs, but there's also like goat horns and like a little bit of like a red like glow or like a like that kind of effect it's pretty weird I'm I'm still reading this mostly for Tommy Lee Edwards art and I actually like the first issue set up where it's like there it's like a bunch of like it's like a big drug dealer gang that acts as a family like in the middle of Kentucky and I expect that we're not going to get a ton of that kind of world building and, and crime type of stuff as now the monster's revealed and as we move along, but the art is uh, really fun. Now, my next issue on a little streak is Hawkman number 28 with Robert Venditti and Fernando Passerin. We start with a bit of backstory in the hat set narrated by Carter, and he identifies Shira as Hawk Girl, which I'm pretty sure he's been doing this whole time, I think, but I don't really like that because you know in, in Bronze Age continuity and everything, Shaira got rid of Hawk Girl. Like and that was like late 70s. She was she became a Hawk woman. And this is that character because again, you know, eventually they introduced eventually they fucked up Hawkman, then they brought back Hawkman, then they made a new version of Hawk Girl. And that Hawk Girl, you know, exists simultaneously with this one in the current DC universe. You know, she was on the Justice League during the Snyder run. I don't know where the hell she is right now. So I, it's where the Carter calls her Hawk girl. In narration, it ma- honestly it may have been a mistake by Venditti, but she points out to him, you know, because she realizes that he's scared and stuff, that their f- fear of dying is the fastest way to get killed. Now, they're no longer, you know, infinitely resurrecting themselves and which is an adjustment for the Hawks, obviously. And then there's a dagger missing from the JSA archive, and it's linked to Anton Haster, who is one of the reincarnations of set kind of during, you know, the Golden Age era during you know, the Carter Hall version of the character, not really as much Qatar. And they find him on a train and he's got like a bunch of thralls as the passengers. And he asks them, hey, what caused the rebirth cycle to end? And, you know, Girl or, or whatever says, long story, you know, don't have time to waste my time telling you. And then there's a footnote that just says, read issues one through 27, which I thought was kind of funny. So they're on the train and all the passengers attack them like zombie-like Beans and the two, the Hawks get separated for a bit and Carter takes a knife to the abdomen right as Shire shows back up and the next issue was the last. So I'm sure there will be some climactic conclusion and this is was enjoyable. There's one really good splash page here, art is solid storytelling wise, but nothing like super, super cool, getting me crazy. Like uh, a couple issues ago when they landed in this JSA timeline.
1: Over in Mortal Hulk, number 38, Al Ewing, Joe Bennett, Rui Jose, and Belladaro, Bravo on inks, so two inkers now, and then Paul Mounts on colors, and big shout out to Paul Mounts' his colors here. looks fantastic. One of the best colored issues of the series so far. So the leader has enacted his plan to take over the Hulk and Shadow Base, but being a super genius, he's pretty dumb, as Joe Fixit points out at the end of the issue, as there's some glaring details he's glossed over. Uh, inside the place below all, uh, Doc Sampson's able to brain him with a piece of, like, scaffolding uh, to use it to escape and then, you know, get to safety. While inside Shadow Base, Dr. McGowan is able to use this machine to basically splice away and destroy the Rick Jones and the, Gamma, the Undying Gamma Man on a molecular level. So this leaves, okay, leaders, kind of personalities in three places, boom, they're taken out. So this just leaves him in Bruce's mindscape as, you know, the... The, uh, the planet Hulk persona of the Hulk the green scar so inside it you know inside Bruce's mindscape the devil Hulk has been chained up but he's sensed that you know the big guy being the Hulk and Bruce have both been hurt which awakens him so that's a uh- oh and it's shown that back when he was a child Bruce manifested the devil Hulk persona as a kind of surrogate father to help cope with uh Brian Banner's abuse and like the severe trauma awakens the devil Hulk so while the leader is attempting to take Bruce through the green door, he's stopped as the Devil Hulk has emerged and he wants the leader as when you hurt banner, it gets personal. So that's our big cliffhanger here. Next issue, I think, is a really cool uh, you know, I know Alatros does the covers for like this whole series, but it's a really, really cool one of like Green Scar fighting Devil Hulk. Um, as we see all the personas like shining out. There's like a they're fighting like on a rainbow bridge or something. Looks cool, crazy. This is fun. Devil Hulk look really, really scary and imposing. So that's, you know, fun to see. And, you know, Joe Bennett continues to kill in this book along with Al Ewing. It's, you know, it's approached that point where, you know, Mortal Hulk's going to be great. And it just ramps up to where, you know, where we get to the end. Only, what, maybe 12 more issues to go. But that's that's all for Mortal Hulk, again, is, you know, not to stick around on it too long. But, Vince, we'll go back to you because it's time for Exaswords Recap.
0: Yes, so we have three issues again, three chapters, Hellions number five, New Mutants number 13, and Cable number five. Unlike last week, we kind of have three separate stories here but obviously there is connected thread. All of the books are by the regular creative team. So that's Zeb Wells and Carmen Carnero, Ed Brisson and Rod Reese, Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto. So in in Hellions, Sinister comes up with a plan and presents it to the council where Let's just cheat in the tournament and break break the rules by stealing the swords that the Araco champions need to track down, also. And the council approves that despite the risks that Resurrection posed in other worlds. But then Sinister gets too cocky towards Magneto over a petty Havoc versus Polaris spat. So then he's voted to have to lead his team into uh, Araco. So, of course, you know, he's not happy with that. So he thaws out a clone from his secret clone uh, factory underneath and they play rock, paper, scissors. So it's not really clear if the quote unquote original Sinister is the one who goes, or if it's the clone, I don't think it really matters. And Empath, who's one of the Hellions is fucked in the head. He just recently got resurrected again, but their mission proceeds. You know, they they don't find any of the swords yet though. In New Mutants, This is basically a Cypher issue. He's being conflicted and nervous about his role in the tournament. Um, It's his usual status quo of like, you know, I'm the stupid weak guy who knows who can translate languages and things. But also there is a a risk element because he's the only translator for Kakoa between the island itself and Mutantum. So it would be a major you know, blow if, if he were to die and they lost that, you know, connection, but also Krakoa itself is resisting like, Hey, I don't want you going on this thing, but you know, Doug wants to, he doesn't want to put someone else in his place. I mean, it's not clear that that is an option, but also, you know, he he wants to prove himself and he wants to contribute and everything like that. But he's also a weak, uh, little worthless, uh, manlet so magic teaches him some sword fighting and exodus comes out of nowhere at some point and considers killing him which would you know because of the resurrection his resurrection is all clogged up so you know cypher would come back but his resurrection would be delayed and someone would have to take his place potentially exodus who you know has his ego but that doesn't go forward at least for now and there's a badass moment in Cypher's training where he's like, yeah, your moves are kind of like a language too. So I can read you know, your patterns and everything like that, which is kind of similar to like the powers of Midnighter, though I'm pretty sure we've seen this before. Like Cypher has definitely made this exact comment where it's like, oh yeah, combat's like a language. So really him like you know, being uh, self-conscious and nervous about himself and then revealing this now It's kind of regression, Um, but whatever, he's trained up, even though Magic, being honest, says that she still thinks he's going to die. Then in Cable, Cable, Cyclops, and Gene, they're up in the S.W.O.R.D. satellite base as we left them off earlier. They're checking things out. Even though Magic keeps FaceTiming Nathan to get back for the tournament, there's this iffy moment where Scott, like they come across like a uh, doors and there's a welding job on it. And Scott uses his powers. To me, based on the art, it's not hundred percent clear whether they're uh, inappropriately depicting his powers transmitting some kind of heat or like laser or melting effect. Um, but it could just be force knocking away all the you know welding pieces or however welding works. And they discover a weird gate, and it kind of looks like a Minecraft a Nether portal. Um, and there, these characters are the Vescora. And they're like a virus. I mean, their concept, it's pretty similar to the Cancerverse or even like the annihilation waves, stuff like that. Um, but they deal with that, they close up the gate, they push that right off for now. You know, I'm sure it might it may come back up later and Cable gets home. Um, so we now have five out of the 10 mutant champions with their swords stabbed into Rockslide's corpse on the ground, So we're half done. Even though I think we're short of halfway. Uh, So many of these come out every week that it is like kind of moving along fast because I think I think Cable is was chapter eight out of 22. So we'll see. I think there's three next week and then there's like another one shot, which may be the middle point, but um, I don't know. It's moving along. These issues were fine.
1: I want to say this was the last issue of Ed Brisson on New Mutants. He's done.
0: Yeah, I believe Via, Via Ayala is taking over Muminance.
1: Okay. Which is interesting. Uh, do we know what Ed is doing next? Um,
0: I'm not certain. Um, but it's interesting because Ayala's Children of the Atom, I think it still hasn't come out yet, the first issue.
1: it's still the
0: way. It's interesting that they announced that she's taking over a book, uh, or they're taking over a book, excuse me, um, before the other title hasn't even come out I, I wonder actually if the, if the next issue of this which may still be in ten of swords comes out before that number one issue
1: yeah yeah we'll we'll see how it shakes out but looks like so I just as you know we got to do the weekly check-in still t- still still gonna write it out you're not you're not off yet
0: yeah I mean for now I think you know if I give myself enough time to read, I can get through three issues and I'm not as focused on, you know, getting every detail of them down. So I don't, and it's still kind of enjoyable.
1: All right. Well, that's, that's good to hear is, you know, we, we really did the 180. I thought I was going to be in your position, but the roles have been reversed because I really thought you were going to jump off, but it turns out it was me who did, but strange adventures. Number six, Vince's favorite book being published by DC right now though I say that only as a joke. Tom King, Mitch Garrods, and Doc Shaner. So we've entered the halfway point here of this Maxi series. This is 6 of 12, and this is a much more kind of quiet issue. It really centers on Mr. Terrific having a conversation with Alana as they discuss their lives and the losses of their children, with Michael Holt revealing that he didn't want to really be a father, and he was almost relieved that the car accident happened that took his wife and his child. And that's what makes him feel guilty, is that he was kind of relieved that it happened. Um, He does press on how they buried Aaliyah for Alana, but says that there was no body. We find that out in kind of the big uh, moment at the end of the issue, um, that they think the pics just destroyed her, and so they only made like a ceremony memorial. There was no body. We get more great scenes of Doc Schiener art on the Battles of Ran as Alana and Adam are kind of fighting on all sides as they're getting spread thin during the war, and they discuss that, you know, Adam wasn't so vulnerable back then, and that Alana takes... Uh, Alana talks about how their father uh, viewed her as the third smartest person on Rand behind himself and Adam. But it looks like she's points out that, you know, it looks like you're so far behind when you've lapped the others in a race showing that Alana's is kind of the smartest out of all of them, as we've led to believe through this entire series so far. And then she thinks that terrific is going to invite her into her, into his house for like another drink, almost making it seem like she's trying to like stage like, for some sort of like coming on to him or possibly, you know, stage an affair. Cause we've already seen her, you know, use cameras to capture Batman poking around, but that's not what happens. Uh, Terrific kind of is like, no, I'm not going to invite you in. Um, I think I can be honest with you is what he tells her. And he cheaply pleads that she didn't kill the man in the bookstore and that there's, they did do cruel things during the war. And it got worse after their daughter's death. And that's where we get the moment of there was no body and then, terrific says, "I guess I believe you, but he's going to continue to dig around, and that there, you know, maybe you should talk to your husband about your daughter." Uh, kind of shutting the door, letting her know it's cold outside. As uh, this whole scene takes place during the winter, some really, really, really great art by uh, Garrod's on the snow effects. Uh, I mean, the art's been fantastic through this whole thing. Is you know that plot thickens where it seems that you know I don't think Ali is really dead. Maybe she's taken the by the picks and become you know a slave to them or maybe she's a sympathizer and that's why they don't want anything to do with her back on Rand. So we'll see what happens here. Um, I like what King's doing. It's, you know, that, that political intrigue of what's going on. And, you know, it seems he's going to carry that right over into our other Tom King books this week, which was the big release from DC, which was Rorschach number one. And Vince will recap this one.
0: Yes. Tom King. And this time he's joined by Jorge Fornez, who he brought into his, Batman gang a year or so ago or whatever. So this was some, in my opinion, some slightly boring, if very attractive political noir type story. It's set, it is obviously set in the Watchmen world, but what does that mean? I'm not really sure how continuity works in general with DC, in, but, you know, specifically here in terms of Giant Squid, yes or no, Doomsday Clock, yes or no, TV show. Tom King has said publicly, at least, basically whatever the hell you want, but at least so far... There's not any, there's not much strong connective tissue to really any of the other pieces of Watchmen besides some of the obvious stuff, but things get absolutely fucking bizarre toward the end. And I think I might hate this more than I was expecting. And I kind of was not going in thinking that I would really like this, but for a whole different reason. So first, as far as what actually happens in the story, a dead Warshack imposter had a tape. Well, okay. So there's a there's a guy wearing a Rorschach mask, and he attempts a assassination on the president, and he has an accomplice, and uh, they find his body, and, and there's a tape, and they decipher the tape. It's like old technology, and the tape references a couple things. It references the creator of the of the fictional in-universe comic Pontius Pirate. Okay, cool. Some meta stuff that's not new to Watchmen. Obviously, the original book had the Tales of Black Freighter, and then Doomsday Clock kind of did a similar thing, even though it was as a TV show, did a similar thing with Nathaniel Dusk, um, which, which is a real DC comic that they pulled in for fictional TV show, but then tape also features Otto Binder trying to contact his daughter, Mary via seance. And so Otto is a real actual human being who wrote thousands of stories at Fawcett of the Marvel family and then brought over to DC and innovated Superman in, in the Silver Age by creating literally Supergirl, the Legion, Brainiac, Candor, Crypto, Bizarro, Phantom Zone, Signal Watch, and so much more. Like this dude literally created, you know, everything that's known about the Marvel family and almost everything that matters about Superman. And Mary, the namesake, who, which inspired the name of Mary Marvel, was killed by a car at age 14. Again, that this is real, you know, that's the actual history. And that event pushed him into alcoholism. He never wrote comics again, though that may or may not be directly related. It's, it's weird. So I believe there's, there's some book which mentions the story. So I think there may have actually been a moment where he discussed or did try like a seance kind of thing to contact Mary, but okay. He, he did that, whatever. But Tom King is now pulling that story, you know, of a real dude who had this tragic event in his life, and you know, who a comic creator into this. He's not singled out. Granted, there's a poet named Mark Van Doren, who's a who's another real person who's mentioned here. Frank Miller is mentioned here. But it's it doesn't quite sit right with me. And the reason I wasn't expecting to really dig this going in is I just I know how contracts work. I know that DC was smart about the contract or maybe they didn't think of it as smart but they just got really lucky that it was such a huge hit you know i know i know all that i know dc's legal position and everything like that um and you can argue about that but you know dc milking 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 watchmen doing spinoffs prequels sequels connecting it to the dc universe it doesn't sit right with me um you know as someone who would definitely lean you know would favor Creators' positions. Obviously, Alan Moore got kind of screwed by DC, you know, on multiple levels, on multiple occasions. So King doing this in the first place kind of annoys me. He's already toying with all-star creators, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. But now he's pulling in and like inserting this real life tragic event in another legendary creator's life into his fictional story. Very strange. Adrian Veidt has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for some reason. That doesn't really make sense to me. And then thing turn, things turn even more uh, on a similar level as the Binder stuff when the Rorschach figure, the way he's described by the detectives, he's literally described as Steve Ditko, essentially. Even though I think, I think he's like he might be like a socialist leaning or something. It's it's not the it's not the philosophy that Ditko actually had, but you know as far as him being a creator who became a hermit, who you know was really into philosophy. It, what Tom King has now just done is have a Rorschach character attempt to assassinate the president and comparing that to Steve Ditko, like putting in the Steve Ditko analog as that character. Of course, the question, I mean, I, I may have accidentally said the question already. Rorschach is obviously an analog of the question which Crow created at Charlton. And then Ditko in turn, refined the question independently into Mr. A, which was kind of like his flagship character in his uh, you know work after that. And also not, not just like putting Ditko in the place of this assassin attempt. He also like in that, I mean, technically it's the detective speaking and it's not Tom King himself, but they say that his later work is crazy and nonsense and it doesn't make any sense, which like, I'm not gonna lie, Almost everyone would probably agree with that. But also Tom King is saying, you know, Ditko's later work is shit in a sense. So he took this book, which was already going to be controversial, and then sticking his finger in the legacies of writers and artists to make some point about something. Like, you know, when they announced this in certain promos and stuff, it was expected this was going to be like the the 2020 book. This was going to be a political thing. It was going to have to do with you know, Trump and, and things like that. And I'm sure it may, I'm sure it will. It's going to be 12 issues. But this first issue, I really don't have a grasp at all on what he's trying to say here. Um, and overall, besides just really, really perfect art from Jorge Farnes, this was kind of a bore to me.
1: Yeah, well, here, here's the deal. I think you're going to get more of the political, current political landscape in Strange Adventures than you are this. I just want to point that out. But, yeah, your points here are all right, as you know, we talked about this earlier in the week. I thought, like, okay, he's doing on all the president's men kind of thing, like, all right, that's interesting. but you know, you you gotta you know pick it apart. It, it feels weird that he is pulling these elements in here where they don't really belong, you know? And then I, you gotta get i you didn't really touch on the other part. But like when this was announced, I was just like, I don't like Rorschach. He's a horrible, horrible person of a character. So I don't really want to read something where he's the main character, you know, for 12 issues or whatever. And it also gets into that element of this is more Watchmen properties that, I, you know, I I love the HBO show. But, like, that's a lightning in a bottle moment where they're not even doing a second season. And nor should they have done a second season. And you can make the argument that they really shouldn't have done the show at all. And it's more of a, you know, it might be more of a fluke than anything else. Because, you know, the, the Snyder movie is not really that great in any of its three different cuts uh, before Watchmen's really just derivative. I mean, you got the Darwin cookbooks that look pretty, but, like, it's not really needed at the end of the day. Like, we don't need more Watchmen content. So, you know, more Watchmen content here, I just – I don't get why we need it. I, I mean, obviously, I do. It's because money sells and Watchmen sells. And, you know, Tom King maxi, prestige maxi series will sell uh, with Horney Fornes on art. It will sell. And, you know, Jorge Fornes' art looks great. It even looks like he's trying to do some Dave Gibbons here in his face work. His faces almost remind me of how Dave Gibbons would draw characters inside Watchmen as well. But, yeah, I don't know what any of the, you know, the allegories he's making light to have anything to do with, uh, you know, Rorschach. At least, you know, at the end of this, the reveal is, oh, the fingerprints are Walter Kovacs. So, obviously, you know, that has to be your ending to the first issue. It's not really a gotcha moment. It's like more of a, okay, let's see what happens next. But yeah, it's very, very slow and plotting first issue of 12. And it's like, I, I, you know, I only read it this week because I thought you said you weren't going to read it. I only read it because you were going to read it so we could discuss it. But yeah, I'm not, you know, excited for more. And it's, he he's doing kind of the same stuff in this that he's doing in strange adventures. Strange adventures has a, you know, a quote from a comics creator. Oh, yeah. Reissue too. It's, I don't, and you know, until I have because the work is so layered that I'm not going to truly understand the context of until you know I have all nine issues and I can read them back to back to back uh, for Strange Adventures, and you're not really probably going to understand the point of all of it until you have all 12 issues of Rorschach either. So, I yeah, man, I don't know, like it looks pretty. I you know, political, like you know, Robert Redford like thriller, which you know, Robert Redford president. On, in this timeline so you know i'm that's kind of cool that's that's interesting but yeah it kind of connects to the show and the fact that redford's the president and they reference oklahoma but he said it takes place pre the show so i mean that would fit but like it's yeah it's really it's pick and choose your own to what you want but there's definitely you know two big moments that scream this is more connected to that show universe which you know then goes back to thing of just like i don't want more of that because don't take away from that, you know, lightning in a bottle effect you already had, don't dilute it. So yeah, when it comes to Watchmen, to me, it's just like, don't bother, please. It's just leave it as it lies, but you know, people are gonna want it. It's, you know, we've always pointed out, the more people buy, you know, the Watchmen toys and figurines and pop figures, it's, you know, it's inherently just kind of funny knowing, you know, the work itself,
0: so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna read issue two. I was just curious about this unless i hear that he starts bringing up other creators and being weird about it. um then i'm going to read for that I, yeah. I thought that was the weirdest part that like it's so weird
1: probably when it's all done maybe like in a few years i'll probably you know eventually sit down and read it find it somewhere and i'll, I'll sit down and you know read it for cheap but i yeah there's nothing here that makes me want to stick around until you know i have the full thing anyway cuz it's going to be so layered like that in itself but uh, a book, you know, last of the regular rundown before we hit the retro. And I think we were much more high on this book this week than the last issue where we all kind of exploded on it. But take it away.
0: Yeah. Wonder Woman 764, Mariko Tamaki. And the art here for, I believe, just this issue is Steve Pugh. I swore we read an issue last week. Uh, Mike has corrected it was two weeks ago. But still, I don't think this is supposed to be a double shipping book. So maybe their schedule got weird. I don't know. Um, obviously, we, we do know that the art has been, you know, several artists and inconsistent. So maybe it is double shipping. Oh, well. Um, so still no Mikkel Janin, but Steve Pugh is a good artist. Diana and Max, they're in Miami, looking into more of his stolen technology. Max is mistaken for an actor, essentially, from like Miami Vice or that equivalent. And they're supposed to be looking for a villain on the beach but then the villain just kind of walks right up to them and starts a fight and reveals himself. He somehow like has like robot slash water constructs that come out of the ocean. So Diana runs off to fight them and handle that while Max stays with the guy until a bodyguard chick of his throws that off. And then somehow Diana is able to summon a fucking Megalodon shark to help in the fight, which technically she's been able to talk to animals like, I think originally, I'm sure it was some, like, Golden Age or Silver Age thing that occurred in, like, two stories. And I'm not sure that it was really much of a thing at all after that, except the, re- the second Greg Rucker run, which, granted, was the beginning of Rebirth. I think he brought that back. But I don't really like it, and especially showing it here where she's summon- summoning a Megalodon shark. It's like, that's Aquaman's turf. And, like, it doesn't really make a ton of sense for one Woman. It's, like, some kind of dumb – I guess the, like, dumb idea is, you know, there's some kind of, like, Greek hero aspect and also, like, a princess, like, almost like a Disney princess kind of thing. But I don't don't like that as a power for her. And it almost never gets used. So just – I don't know. I don't like it. But it ends with a kind of cool page of Diana sitting on a surfboard in the sunset. And Max is being shown a little reckless with his powers – And he's also keeping up with his daughter's status, whether that's for good or for bad. I thought this was fine. It's a big improvement on last issue for sure, but I still think Tamaki isn't shining like she was on basically just the first two issues. I'm not sure. Like I I honestly feel, and I said this basically last time, and this is, this is an improvement, way better art. I thought the writing was better as well, but this kind of is to me just settling into like a, it's just like a house-style book, which, granted, I feel almost exactly the same way about Detective Comics, but I'd read that over this.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think right before the show, I was, I, I was like, I'm, it's not a complete 180, but, like, I, I'm willing to go, like, 120. This was fun with some pretty fun, high, zany hijinks. Like, that was fun. Wonder Woman, like, uh, more dressed down in the casual wear. I think that was a nice touch, too, being in Miami. They really leaned into that, which I think was a strength here, too. Um, I, I kind of, you know, I've liked this, you know, budding personalities we have between Diana and Max Lord here. I think it's actually kind of working and fun, so that's good. Steve Steve's art is pretty good. Uh, I, you know, wish he'd sticking around, but he's not. But I do want to say this has been bi monthly um, as it as a, since since issue one. Um, yeah. It's been like every other week, so maybe the, that I definitely probably screams for the art changes, but. Yeah, it' there's something that is clearly not at the caliber of the first two issues, and that's from the rating and the art side. But uh, when it comes to the powers, the, the commanding the shark, I don't know. I thought it was cool. You know, it's not something she's got to do all the time. More of like a, you know, deep dish of powers you dig into in a big moment. And that was a kind of a big moment, you know. And, that you know, giant shark coming to eating a bunch of robots. That's a plus in my book because, you know, giant sharks are cool to look at on the page. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, cool. Yeah, Yeah. it looked. It was a fun book. Is you know, it was a one-off and almost kind of a reset to see how we reposition the run. So, you know, seven sixty-five. Let's see really what's the meat here and what we're going to be doing.
0: You know. Yeah, it it looks like next issue actually is also Steve Pugh, and it's something about the invisible jet getting shot down, so they're stranded. Uh, So we'll see. That seems that seems interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not mad about reading this book, but I'm just even on this. Even on the strong issues, it's just a disappointment compared to the kickoff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly, but you know, it's still good. It's, it hasn't like tanked off where the point of I'm considering dropping it. No, it's, it's, it's been fun to read so far. It's just been aggravating in different areas, but that is your rundown for the normal books this week. in our normal rundown, I'll throw it to myself here in a second as it's retro time. Now, I do want to preface in saying that Dan originally had the pick, but because he couldn't be here, the pick reverted to me. So we had to redraw. And I got November 2013 DC in that's smack dab right in the middle of Villains Month. So it was like, oh no. And I, we we've established rules where – you can you get one redo like one reroll a year for sort of like per 52 episodes or i guess no i guess per calendar year you get one reroll so we'll have you know for remaining of 2020 you can use one and then in 2021 you can use one again but you can't bank them so like if me and vince don't you know we don't use our reroll between now and you know december we don't get to keep that, so keeping that in mind here, I, I could have used one, but I didn't because, well, you know, if you get 60 DC, I'm much more willing to, you know, roll on that than here. But I chose Forever Evil Number One as I felt that was the safest choice instead of taking the, you know, the villains' point issues. I felt that could have been far worse. But this is Jeff Johns, and David Finch, Forever Evil Number One, and yeah, smack dab in the middle of Villains Month is this was the giant buildup, and this comes right out of trinity war which was like the first big new 52 crossover and this is kind of the next crown jewel event that dc would constantly kind of lean into from here as the new 52 carried on so yeah very slim pickings this month i apologize but hey that's what the random number generator shows. and boom oh man just so at the end of trinity war that was the emergence of the crime syndicate or the secret society, whatever you want to call them. And they're preparing to take over the world, recruiting all the villains from the DC universe. So they're like, all sent this coin with their logo on it. They're like, oh, let's meet here. And they're all preparing to take over the world. You know, they capture and torture Nightwing as proof that, you know, they're actually legit. And they're saying that they've killed the Justice League because they all get taken out at the end of Trinity War. So, you know, you got Superwoman holding up Wonder Woman's lasso and you got Ultraman uh, showing Superman's cape to be like, all right, we're, we're not to mess with. We're for real. And this is also while this is all happening, Lex Luthor is in the he gets in a helicopter crash while trying to extort and destroy. Uh, I think Thomas Cord of Cord Industries. At least I thought his name was Thomas. It's not uh, Ted, obviously. But we then we see Ultraman proclaiming that this is you know he sees Ultraman blocking out the sun and he's like, oh crap, this looks like a job for Superman. Maybe I can't even handle this one. And then we also get the Rogues here who are also kind of feeling uneasy about this whole situation. And then, you know, spinning out of this, eventually it would lead to Lex becoming like a pseudo good guy, along with Captain Cold, as after this, they joined the Justice League for a bit. But, oh man, this is, you know, I'll I'll open it to Vince here in just a tad second. But, man, this, I, I as much as I don't enjoy Dark Knight's death metal, I would have death metal over this, just because this is much more irritating in different facets but I'll, I'll let Vince go and we'll, we'll come back to me for my critiques on it because, oh boy.
0: Yeah, I thought this was kind of cringe. Ultraman snorts kryptonite at a certain point. I thought the Finch art was really inconsistent. Um, I, obviously, this is 2013. But if I compare this to, you know, when he was at Marvel, I guess like four or five years before this, you know, starting with New Avengers, you know, breakout and everything like that and a couple of the events. Um, and then eventually he makes his way over to DC. I'm not sure what he did before, but then he did Dark Nights and then you know lands on this. This issue at least, which it's a first issue and it's an event, so you think you'd have a lot of time with it, but it was rough. Um, there were some moments, like a lot of the Nightwing shots, I'm like, what's going on with his face? There's some weird lines. Uh, I, I thought the art was pretty mediocre, especially given that it's Finch. Um, and that's not even getting into too much the mess. Um, obviously, this is DC in 2013, so there's all kinds of continuity stuff that triggers me. I could I could ignore Red White Red Nightwing for a while, even though he's central to this issue, but not the one panel with the this disastrous era of the Teen Titans. Um, <laughs> but I am grateful that you did not pick a villains month issue. And and I, you know I haven't read Death Metal. I didn't even read Metal, but you know, reading his justly work, reading, you know, some of his Batman stuff where he goes a bit more out there. I kind of agree with you. Um, I feel like this era of Jeff Johns and just kind of like the DC universe in general, like literally 90% of New 52, like it was a lot of attempted edginess, attempted quote unquote maturity, but just to be edgy, just to be adult. Whereas like, you know, I don't like Snyder's aesthetic and he's definitely edgy, and he's obviously trying to be edgy with Batman Who Laughs, but I get more of a feeling that, that like, that's what he's like, I get more of a feeling that that's authentic, even though that may sound really stupid. Like with Batman Who Laughs, I think that Scott Snyder genuinely thinks like, this is badass. But like, you know, Jeff Johns having Ultraman snort kryptonite, like it doesn't come off as authentic to me. It's, it, seem, it feels a lot more forced.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I agree pretty much wholeheartedly what you said. I forgot that this was the issue that has the infamous, uh, you know, kryptonite snort. I thought that was, you know, near the end of Trinity War, maybe down the line in this book. And yeah, Finch looks really rushed here. Luckily, he'll have a strong comeback when he's on King's Batman, you know, back in, you know, in 2016. So three years later. And, you know, even not having read it, but at least like looking through I think his Superman and Wonder Woman stuff looked good and better than this year, too. But yeah, oh boy, this, you know, we we were seniors in high school back in uh, November of 2013. And I was still reading uh, my books in physical floppies every week. And I remember getting this. And this is kind of right around the point after kind of being burned out from Trinity War. And yeah, I think, you know, I think I dropped this by around issues three or four. I didn't even finish this. So that this was kind of my breaking point for the new 52 at that time. I think uh, I would officially stop buying singles regularly at the end, uh, like midway through freshman year of college. So this is very close. in that time frame when I stopped buying my single issues every week down at a uh, weekly uh, comic book shop. So, yeah, this, this was my breaking point for the new 52, at least, you know, line-wide at that point. I think I scaled back to where it was just, you know, just maybe Batman. So who knows at this point. But that's that's Forever Evil number one, um, as you popped in and out there. But picks of the week. What do you got?
0: Um, hmm.
1: There's a lot of books this week.
0: Yeah, but... I don't know that any really stood out to yeah, me. As
1: nothing great. Tr- stood out. <laughs> nothing truly. You know, me. I'm
0: gonna give it to I'm gonna give it to New Mutants actually.
1: New Mutants, the final issue of New Mutants for Ed Brisson. and I'll give mine to uh, Amazing Spider-Man Fifty. I think it was pretty fun. It was fun seeing Patrick Lee's Spider-Man. So, uh, at least that was like the most fun, impactful book. It was the last book. Maybe it's because I saved it on the last of my stack of books this week. Maybe that has something to do with it, but like, I like that. I like that. I liked detective a lot. Immortal Hulk's always good, but yeah. And then, and then, you know, after that it was kind of just like, yeah, it was all right. But yeah, that's, that's the show this week. As we wrap up, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, look for the weekly rundown video that goes out on Wednesday on new comic day. So you can see what we're reading, what the future book's going to be look for cool cover Friday on that's every Friday on Twitter and Instagram as well. And then, you know, look for, you know, the pick of the week review that'll get posted sometime later in the week or on the late weekend and, you know, continue to wear your mask, wash your hands when you go outside and, you know, keep yourself safe and protect yourself as uh, we ramp up to these winter months here. But that's all I got for this week. So continue to stay safe out there and uh, have a good one. Thanks. (music)